Man, it is good to be with you. I'm so glad we get an opportunity to hang out today. I want to welcome all of you guys joining, those of you here at 48th Street, those of you in Macomb, Kirksville, 929, Pike County, Hannibal, Lima, Mount Sterling, Keokuk, Monmouth, Jacksonville, online, inside. I am just so thankful to be a part of this church with incredibly awesome people like you watching the baptism video and just seeing all the incredible work that's happening. You just can't help but be grateful to God and to be grateful to be a part of this church. Am I alone in that? Okay, you guys are awake. All right. Hey, listen, it's been a hot week, but it's been rainy today, so you should feel a little bit better about yourself. If you're brand new to The Crossing, I'm so glad that you're here. Make sure that before you leave today, you spend some time connecting with the campus pastor and one of our incredible staff members, difference makers at each of our location. If you want, you can uh, click on that QR code that's in the seat in front of you. It might be on one of the screens, uh, and you can click on that. And it'll give you an opportunity to connect with us so that way we can help uh, graft you into the family. You can realize what an incredible group of people you get an opportunity to be surrounded by because they will love you well. Now, before I get into the message, i got to do a little bit of housekeeping with you. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a sermon series. On the weekend of Thursday the 21st and Sunday, July 24th, we're going to start a 12-week sermon series called Weeds in My Garden, a series on being honest about mental health. And we are going to spend, and I, I've said this already, that uh, I believe that these 12 weeks could be the most important 12 weeks of the year for our church. And during that sermon series, we are going to be talking about, uh, well, we're going to be talking about suicide. We're going to be talking about self-harm. We're going to be talking about stress, anxiety, burnout, low self-esteem, and depression. It is going to be a transformative 12 weeks in the life of our church. It's going to be transformative in your life, and it's going to be transformative in the life of the people that you love. And I want to give you three things that I'm going to ask you to do as we prepare for that sermon series. One, I want you guys to continue. I brought this up a while back. Would you guys keep praying for Jerry and I as we're preparing those messages? Second thing, would you pray for our staff as they're going to be, uh, no doubt, fielding lots of questions and challenging conversations? The third thing. And I mean this, this is going to be an incredible sermon series for you to invite your friends, your family members, your neighbors, and your coworkers. Because every person you know is either dealing with one of those things or has somebody that they love who is. And this sermon series is designed to give us some help, to give us some hope, and, to some, and put some tools in our toolbox to help us navigate the days we have between now and when we get to meet Jesus. And it is going to require our help to be able to do the most good all across this region. I want to make a special request. If you are watching this sermon series from wherever you're joining from, and you are a counselor or a mental health professional, would you click on the QR code uh, that's either on the chair in front of you or it's up on the screen uh, right here? And if you would click on that, and when you do that, there is a, it's going to pull up our link tree, and one of those things in there is counselor info form. I want you to click on that, and I want you to fill out your information. And we are going to send you an email uh, this week that's going to give you a little insight into where we're going and actually give you the opportunity to help us as we prepare for that series. I have a team of people that are all uh, mental health professionals that are going to help guide me through this sermon series, but we want to give you guys an opportunity to go on the journey with us because we would greatly appreciate your help. 
That being said, uh, I want to give you a heads up. If you're a parent and you love bringing your kid to church with you and you love bringing your kid into the auditorium, here's what I'm asking is uh, in two weeks when we start that sermon series, I'm going to encourage you to not do that. And I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. If you have, uh, you know, kids that are in sixth grade uh, and down, we have incredible programming at all of our different locations. If you have a fuse that meets on Sunday morning, I want you to take full advantage of that. And I'm asking you to not bring your kids for three reasons. One, I don't want to put ideas in your kids' mind when you haven't been maybe prepared to lead through it. Okay? So I'm just, I'm telling you up front, um, I, I want to protect you in that. Second thing is, your kids will always learn way more in our kids' programming than they ever, ever will here uh, learning from Jerry and I. If you think that they learn more in here, then just pull them out of grade school and just send them straight to John Wood or Western Illinois or Truman State. But you and I both know that this is not the best environment for them to learn. And if you want your kids to learn about Jesus, you want to put them in the very best possible place for them to learn about Jesus. And we spend a ton of money at our church employing a bunch of awesome people and buying a bunch of great tools to make sure that your kids' experience is the very best it can be for them to learn about Jesus and for them to be able to have friends that can help them grow with Jesus. Third reason, I said there was three, and I'm a man of my word. Third reason is I want you to be a good neighbor. And when your kid is jacking around in the service, I need you to hear me. There's people around you that are going to be hanging on for dear life during that sermon series. And they are going to be doing everything they can to learn as much as they can so they can go home and make a difference in their loved one's lives. And your kid could be a distraction from that moment. So I want you to be a good neighbor. Now, I'm not saying that today. You know, I love having my kids come to church. They love coming and listening to Jerry, just like my wife. Um, got no home team. And uh, I love it when my kids want it. That's great. I let them do that after they've already been to church because I want them to learn in an age-appropriate environment. We all good? Nobody hates me yet? Because today we're talking about hell. And I wanted to have everybody on my team when I did. I'm being serious, okay? Uh, we're in a sermon series called The Other Side, and we're going to be talking about what happens after you die. Last week, because I love Jerry, I let him talk about heaven. This week is hell, and next week we're going to talk about the two judgments that every single one of us is going to face. Woo! It's been hot this week. Let's just keep it going. Now, some of you might be wondering, why are we talking about hell this week? Of all the weeks, this is the week I was finally able to bring a friend to church. I get it. Uh, you might be going, some of you just wandered off the street, you lost a bed at work, and here you are. You're just looking for some AC because your air conditioner's out, and you showed up here. Listen, uh, I want you to hear me say this. This is an incredible weekend for you to be at our church. Uh, this is going to be a great message for absolutely every single one of you to hear. And if you can put up with the first 20 minutes of this message, and we're already eight minutes in, you only got 12 minutes left of the tough stuff. The last 10 minutes are gonna be life-giving. They're gonna be powerful. They're gonna be life-altering, I promise. The reason I'm talking about hell is because the Bible talks about it. And if we are gonna be Jesus people, if we're gonna be church people, 
If we're going to be people who believe in the word of God, then we have to believe that when the Bible says that everything in Scripture is useful, that us looking at hell and, and seeing what the Scripture says about it is going to be useful to our lives. That we need to submit our lives to God's will, God's purposes, and God's word. And if I'm going to be a good pastor, I've got to make sure that we spend some time talking about all the things that God talks about. And some of you, you maybe grew up in a church that talked about hell a little too much. Like it was, you know, hell all the time and it was rarely got around to heaven. It was all law and no grace. You may have had to go to an old school revival. Raise your hand if you went to a revival. My parents took me. Didn't work, but I went. Yeah, and you heard that hell was hot and eternity was long. And you're like, mm, we got to get out of here, okay? However, uh, uh, maybe it has been overdone. But my worry is that uh, we probably don't talk about it enough. And I just want us to at least level the playing field and have an honest dialogue about it because there is a lot of confusion, not just in the world, but in Christian circles about hell. I'll hear good, well-meaning Christians say things like, well, you know, I'm more of a New Testament Christian person. I'm more of a love and grace guy. And I, you know, hell and all that wrath, that's Old Testament. That's cute. It'll look good on a bumper sticker. It might make for a good Christian Jesus shirt for you to wear to your new Christian band that you like to go to. But hear me, uh, guess who talked about hell more than anybody else? Jesus. Uh-oh. Yeah. Check this one out. Guess who talked about it more than everybody else combined? Yeah, that New Testament guy we're a big fan of. Jesus. If it was important to Jesus, it probably ought to be important to us. Now, uh, there's a lot of ideas floating around uh, from atheists and religious people about what happens after we die. So we're going to spend a couple minutes just going through all of them. Uh, the atheists, uh, they believe, they're bound by evolution, and so they believe that when we die, that's it. Game over. There's nothing after it. They have to become a naturalist. There's no way away from it for them. However, but an atheist believes that there is ultimately no right and ultimately no wrong. There is no higher power and there is no higher purpose. If a person is an atheist, their moral high ground is either grounded in the worship of self, whatever is good for them, or popular opinion, whichever group is in power. The problem with the atheistic worldview is that it reinforces a philosophical a belief in survival of the fittest. That means that at some point in time, in order for you to advance, in order for you to win, in order for you to get ahead, eventually, you will have to be the fit one, which means that you will have to step and advance on the weak and the marginalized and the oppressed. And it flies in the face of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. If you're a Jesus person, this is where we draw our inspiration from. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Jesus people. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And you're going, well, that would be really hard for me, Jesus, because I'm a pretty big deal. Well, check out what he says. Let's keep going. For even, uh-oh, even Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom 
for many. Christianity flies in the face of survival of the fittest. It's the fittest loving the least. Now, some of you might be going, okay, that's cool, but I'm not an atheist. Fine. Uh, you heard some people talk, or you've heard, maybe heard some people talk about reincarnation. That after you die, you come back as something else. And if you are really bad, you, you know, you come back as a, as a you know, uh, a fat white guy who doesn't have a lot of money. And if you are really, really bad, uh, you come back as lettuce, which is why, you know, I don't eat uh, salad. And if you, if you were pretty decent, if you did a pretty good job, you come back as an attractive, wealthy person. If you were fantastic, you come back as somebody who's, you know, famous and popular and Steve Jobs. That's what happens. The problem is, uh, the Bible flies in the face of that. Because you don't just keep dying over and over again and coming back to life and never realizing it, which is the general thrust of, of reincarnation. Because look what Jesus says. Remember Jesus, Matthew chapter 25. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When it's over, there's no do-overs. Your destination is cemented eternally. You don't get a second chance. You don't get a do-over. You don't get to try it out all over again. When you die, you're done. That's what Jesus says. There's some who believe in universalism. Hey, man, all roads lead to heaven. Come on, bro. They usually have like a hemp sticker somewhere on their car. I get it. Peace, man. Everybody, I get it, man. It sounds fun. Fantastic. Everybody, there's no right. There's no wrong, man. I get it. I'm not even being mean. They seem like super cool people. Wouldn't let them watch my kids, but they sound like they'd be a lot of fun. And they just think that everybody eventually ends up in the same place. The problem with that is this pesky guy named Jesus. Look what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him. It's not whoever believes. I believe in a heaven. I believe in a better place. That's not what gets you there. Whoever believes in him, him being Jesus, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Universalism. Really wide road, everybody gets there. Really wide gate, every, there's room for everybody here. No matter where you're at, no matter what you think, come on in. Jesus is saying no, because that road leads to destruction. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. The narrow road is only as wide as Jesus Christ. And unless you go through him, you're not getting in. Now, there's some people out there who believe in annihilationalism. You might be going, Clayton, we don't believe any of these things, but you'd be surprised who show up. This is a belief that unbelievers will not experience eternity in hell suffering, but they will just be extinguished. Like, uh, remember when you got grounded? And your parents like, you're getting grounded for a week, and if you were really bad, you got grounded for two weeks. That functionally, when you die, God just grounds you, and he just burns you in hell for a little bit until you've burned up enough, and then he extinguishes you and you disappear. And after a long period of torment, they're just no more. And they argue that the word eternal in scripture should be translated age or eon. That means you're just going to be in hell for a little bit. 
and then it'll be over. The huge problem with that is the Bible. The reason why there's a huge problem is because when the Bible talks about hell, it talks about day and night, forever and ever. I already showed you this verse, but let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 25. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word that they want to translate, age or eon, which is a perfect, which is a fine interpretation, you can't go, it's just a short period of time for eternal punishment, but it's forever and ever for those who are going to eternal life. If this is temporary, then this is temporary. Doesn't make sense, no matter how you measure it. Heaven would only end up being for a short period of time. Some of you uh, may have grown up in a church where you heard about purgatory. Those who believe in purgatory believe that you, uh, it's a place where you go to pay for your sins before you go to heaven. Aside from the fact that nowhere is, this, is purgatory mentioned in Scripture, nor is anything remotely close to it alluded to in Scripture, the main text that they use is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, starting with verse 12. This is, this is the purgatory verse in the Bible. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, this is the purgatory verse, verse 15, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. This is the purgatory verse in the Bible. That you'll be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. However, the context of this verse is about how we build our faith and the quality of the work of our faith. In other words, what is built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, the solid rock of him, that quality material, it will last. But that which is of poor quality and poor material will be burned up. You're going, Clayton, you have not made sense yet. Let me keep going. Here's what he's saying. Our faith will be intact, but the flaws in our theology, the shortcomings of our belief system, the errors in our walk will be consumed by the fire. It is not the believer that passes through the fire, but our works. Furthermore, to believe in purgatory is a wretched assault on the work of Jesus Christ. In the very same book that I just read from, Paul is writing. Look what he says in chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that Christ died for our sins. If Christ died for our sins, then what are you paying for in purgatory? What you're functionally saying is that Jesus could afford the bill, but he couldn't afford the tip. That somehow he needs you at the end of your life to make up the difference. That's wrong. When we sing about the death of Jesus on the cross, we sing songs like Jesus paid it all. 
Furthermore, we have these words of Paul in Colossians, same author, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Nowhere in that verse does it talk about you making you holy in God's sight. The thrust of the gospel message is that Jesus made us right with God. It is not of our own. It's something that he did on our behalf. Okay, so what's hell? You got four more minutes. Hang on, then we get to the good stuff. So what is hell? Hell is described all throughout scripture as a place of eternal torment, unquenchable fire. It's a place where the worm does not die, where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. It is a place where people go and they do not return, even to warn loved ones. It is a place of outer darkness. One of the descriptions that Jesus uses is that of Gehenna. We're going to be going to Israel uh, late next year, and if you go, you'll get to, be, you'll get to see it. It was uh, this place on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem that had previously been used for child sacrifice. And it was deemed as an uninhabitable place. And so because of the steep edges on the walls of Jerusalem, it became the trash dump. And people would go to the edge of the city walls and they would dump their trash over the top and it would fall down. And they'd take dead bodies and it would fall down. And then they would keep the fires burning to keep the smell down. And to keep the bacteria and the disease from spreading. And all day long, smoke rose out of Gehenna. And when Jesus is talking about hell, he says, that's what it's like. It's a place where God is absent. And all things God are absent. I know, I know it's fun sometimes when we're talking about, oh yeah, you know. I'm going to hell, and I'm just going to keep on partying when I get there. I'm just going to keep on dancing, keep on having sex, keep on partying when I'm in hell. Hear me. Sex and music are both gifts from God. They won't be there. I know it's catchy to, like, when someone dies at their funeral to play, you know, if you get to heaven, give heaven a little hell. No. No. The one thing you won't find in heaven is a little bit of hell. I want to be very clear. So what will happen? Some of you might be wondering, well, who goes to hell? I mean, you've obviously said it's a place we don't want to go, so who goes there? Well, John 14, 6 tells us who goes there. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one of two places for you to go. You can either go to be with the Father, which is what heaven is, or you can choose to not go to the Father. And the absence of the Father, we've already established this, is hell. And the only way to get to the Father is through the Son, Jesus Christ. And there might be some of you going, um, well, I don't know about that. Hear me. Unless Jesus is the source, the foundation, the power of your faith, and of your salvation, you are not going to heaven. That means woke leftist ideology won't get you there. 
It means uh, conservative nationalism won't get you to heaven. You won't get in for being a Republican. You won't get in for being a Democrat. It means that if you're an atheist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Mormon, your life is in peril. There's some of you who are going, whoa, I thought I liked this place. Hear me. You might be going, Clayton, we, we really do. We like this church, but that does not seem fair. I couldn't agree with you more. It's not fair. It's not fair at all. However, I want to say a couple things to you regarding the fairness of God. One, we live in a world that has been so covered in the grace of God that we can forget his justice. We live in a world that has been so infused with his mercy that we can lose sight of his holiness. So for those of you who be going, this does not sound fair, this does not sound like a God that I can get behind, let me, uh, let me speak to that. First thing I would say to you is uh, that it's not about fair and that he's not being closed-minded and he's not being exclusionary. When we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father, what we're actually saying is Jesus <clears throat> is the only one who. He's the only one who. He's the only one who left heaven and came to earth. He's the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one who paid the ultimate price on the cross. He's the only one who perfectly demonstrated the love of God. He's the only one who destroyed the works of the devil. He's the only one who healed us with his wounds. He's the only one who had the iniquity of us all placed on his shoulders. He's the only one who saves because he's the only one who could. He's the only one who did. He's the only one who died in my place. He's the only one who was buried and three days later rose from the dead. He's the only one who ascended to the Father full of grace and mercy. When we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father, it's because Jesus is the only one who saves. That's it. We're not saying that he's hateful. We're not saying that he's exclusionary. He's saying, I'm the lifeboat, and there's not another one. I'm the only boat in these waters, reaching out its hand, asking people, do you want to be saved? It's not exclusionary. I'm just the only one here. Second thing. We don't want fair. Right? If you believe in fairness, you're a bad parent. You know this in your heart. When your kids come to you, that's not fair. Do you go, you're brilliant. <laughs> oh, I know. You've got some catchy parenting tip. Well, life's not fair sometimes, kid question. If things aren't fair in your house, raise your hand. Yeah, that's what I thought. Life's not fair. Because we only want fair when we stand to benefit. We don't want fair when we stand to lose. We want fair when it's in our favor. But we don't want fair when it's time to pick up the tab. Husbands, when your father-in-law, when you were dating the, his daughter, took you out for a meal and he offered to buy, did you go, that's not fair? Your broke butt said, thank God. That's what you did. When, when your kids come up to you and go, that's not fair, it's only when you're talking about who gets to watch what on the TV and who gets to play for how long on the gaming console. But when the bills show up at the house, no one's going, hey, that's not fair. I didn't get to pay for the car this month. No, I did that, right? 
They're not, your kids aren't showing up. Dad, Mom, it's not fair that you guys work so hard to pay for this house. We want to get jobs too. Never heard it. Not once in my entire life have they gone to the store and said, oh my goodness, these groceries are getting expensive. Can we help out? Right? Imagine going home and saying, you know what, kids, it's been pretty unfair around here. Your mom's been doing a lion's share of the laundry, and I've been doing a lion's share of the yard work, and we've been doing it for, by we can count, your entire stinking life. So we're going to take the next 12 years of your life, and we're going to kick back. Christians, we don't want fair when it comes to the goodness of God. Because there's only one thing you and I deserve in a fair world. And it's hell. When we look at God's saving work, the question that doesn't come to our mind is not how does anybody end up in hell. What blows our mind is that anybody shows up in heaven. How could, how could you and I ever get there? Because every single one of us, myself included, we deserve hell. And we know this internally. Because when I sin, I sin against an eternally perfect God, and so do you. And justice is always determined by the offense of the person. Let me explain. If I come to your neighborhood tonight and I kill all the flies, you know what you guys are going to do? Put palm branches in and go, this guy rocks. If I kill all the mosquitoes, Pete is not going to be walking down your neighborhood going, this guy's got to be stopped. He's a monster. He kills animals. Right? There's a difference between me killing all the flies and the mosquitoes and me killing all the neighborhood dogs. That'll raise some flags. <laughs> right? There's a difference between speeding on the highway and speeding in a school zone. Because there's a difference between an offense against 18-wheelers and small children at play. There's a difference between killing the neighborhood cat and taking the life of a human being. And our justice system is built on who the offense is against. So what do you think you and I should get when our sin is an offense against a holy and an eternal God? What would seem fit? Eternal punishment. It's when we understand the reality of God's holiness and perfection and the sinfulness of our lives that we are left to ponder this question. How does God allow anybody into heaven? And I'm going to tell you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. This is how he does it. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for me. And you, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. How do I get into heaven? How do you get into heaven? He took all of your sin, all of your iniquity, and he laid it on Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus became my sin. And I became his righteousness. When God set out to solve the problem of hell. He did it through the work of Jesus. Think of all the sins that you could ever think of that you've committed. 
They were laid on Jesus. Jesus became an adulterer, a cheater, a liar, a coveter, a stealer, a murderer, a molester, a pedophile. He became all of those things so you and I could be the righteousness of Jesus. We became the 33-year-old man who lived a perfect and sinless life. We became his righteousness, and he became our guilt. He became our shame. He took up our penalty. We get the mercy of Jesus, and he gets our mess. We get the good works of Jesus, and he gets our sins. We get the perfect life of Jesus, and Jesus gets pierced. We get the righteousness, and he gets the unrighteousness. Don't ever doubt the love of God, because look what it says in 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the desire of Jesus. That's the desire of God that you and I would come into fellowship with him where hell no longer becomes an issue because you are in right standing because of Jesus. So what should you and I do? Well, the Bible's really clear. When you come to the knowledge of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you're supposed to do three things. You're supposed to believe that what Jesus said and what Jesus did, he did and he is. Second thing, you repent. You recognize, hey, I got to stop living for me. I got to start living for him. I'm done being in charge. You're in charge. And then you get baptized. You make him your Lord and Savior. Lord means uh, you live for him now. You're no longer in charge. And some of you, you might be going, but uh, Clayton, when it comes to getting baptized, uh, what do you mean by that? I mean that you symbolize what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You are buried in your sins and you are raised to new life in him. And you might be going, but Clayton, I was baptized as a baby. That's great, but that's nowhere in scripture. You might be going, uh, every time baptism's talked about in scripture, it's your decision. You don't get saved because your parents wanted you to be a believer. That was a wet baby dedication. That's what it was. Listen, if baptism against somebody's will worked, what should we do today? We should get a bunch of people drunk, take them out to the Mississippi, dip them in, bring them back up, and go see in heaven, man. They're like, what happened? Oh, well, you just got dunked. You got baptized, right? Okay, that clip is going to live in the wrong ways, and I apologize for that, okay? They're going to be like, I knew that church was jacked up. Listen, listen, if you can't take a person against their will and baptize them in that count, how can you take a baby and do the same? Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that. It means your parents loved you. It means that they wanted you to grow up in church. It means that they wanted you to grow up and make a decision to follow Jesus Christ on your own accord. And what better way to fulfill that prayer than for you to do it yourself? And some of you might be going, but Clayton, I've been following Jesus and coming to this church for a really long time. And if I get baptized, people are going to be like, what's wrong with that person that they took so long? Listen, this church will never get frustrated at people being obedient. Never. We'll cheer just as loud. You might be going, but Clayton, it's going to be a little awkward because, I mean, I've been a small group leader. I've served at this church. Listen, this church will never get frustrated at people being obedient because guess what? I'm going to learn something about Jesus next week where I screwed up, and I bet you want me to be a person who goes, i got to fix it. That's what happens as we continue to follow Jesus. Hear me. Those of you who are, already have a faith, I want you to pay attention to me. This is why we give. This is why we serve. This is why we lead life groups and D groups. 
is because we see our lives and our hardships and our struggles and our opportunities as ways to point people to the goodness of God and point them to the realities of heaven and turn them away from the possibility of hell. Christians, what would happen if you saw your life in between these two cosmic realities, heaven and hell? Could you deal with people being hard to you if you knew that the way you operated might show them a little Jesus and it might lure them into his ways? What if you were to change the way you posted because you wanted to make sure you always had an opportunity to point people to Jesus instead of turn them away, and if you turn them away, there's going to be less people to show them the ways of Jesus? What if we saw our hardships and our struggles as opportunities to reflect the goodness of God and how we endured that hardship as an opportunity to point people to Jesus? What We should be the kind of people that overlook offenses in order to make inroads to point people to Jesus. Christians should be so full of grace, so full of mercy, because we have a deep longing desire to turn people away from hell and point them to Jesus, who's the only one who can save. And I hope you will join me in that mission. We're moving to a time of decision. I went long, okay? I shaved 25 minutes out of my sermon, and I'm still long, so pay attention. We're going quick. I want you to just say the word when. Say it a little bit louder. Okay, if you were to come to me with marriage counseling, and you'd be like, hey, we've been getting in a fight, but he said he was sorry, I would say, when when did he say he was sorry? Well, after he got caught. If you were to come to me, and you were to be hanging out with me, and you were to say, you know, we've been having problems with our kids, and uh, we had a fight and a big deal, and, but he said he was sorry, and I would say, well, when? Well, after I went to him, and I said I was sorry, that's when my kids said that they were sorry. Timing matters. Give me the word one more time. So when did God move on your behalf? We live in a world where it's always after. I'll be good to my wife after she's good to me. I'll be work hard for my boss after he pays me what I'm worth. We live in an after culture. But when did Jesus move on your behalf? When did he do it? That would be interesting. Where does the scripture talk about when God moved on my behalf? You better believe it does. Top five favorite verses of the Bible. Get the tattoo on your neck for all I care. Romans 5, 8. While. That's when he moved. Not after. While. Romans 5, 8. While. We were still sinners. When did he move? He moved while. You keep thinking God will love me after I get baptized. You keep thinking God will love me after I get my life right. You think God will love you after you come to church enough times. You think God will love her after you serve enough after you sing enough songs, after you give enough money, but the Bible is clear. While we were still sinners, when you were cheating on your wife, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While when you were beating somebody, Stealing from somebody, robbing somebody, bullying somebody, posting on somebody while we were still sinners. That's when he moved. He moved 
in your behalf while you were doing an assault against his character. He moved while you were sinning against him, while you were racking up a bill, not after. He saw you and you were worth it. God was at his best when you were at your worst. When did he move? He moved while. And if you're here today and you're watching online and you've never started an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, don't put it off. In just a few moments, everybody's going to stand around you. If you're watching online, there's going to be something that's going to pop up in the chat. There's going to be people over here that would love an opportunity to talk with you about starting an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's some of you, you've never been baptized. There's some of you that may have been sprinkled but never have been immersed as the Bible teaches. Listen, we want to celebrate with you. We'll stay until we're, you're done. If you're going, you know what? He's talking about me. It's not Clayton talking to you. That is the Spirit of God drawing his children back home. And our church will celebrate that. Now, you're already here and you're a Jesus follower. I want us to live our lives in light of these two realities. There is a very real hell and there is a very real heaven. And how we live our lives changes the population of both. At the beginning of the year when I cast vision for this church, I said, I want us to make this region the hardest place on planet earth to get to hell from. And the way we give and serve and love and lead and handle offense and hardship will show people the love and the power of Jesus Christ. And maybe some of us need to spend just a little bit of time on our knees going, God, I have not been a reflection of you to a watching world and I need some help. And let's just be a church that's real about that stuff. Okay, stand up. Let me pray for you. God, we need you right now. In every heart, in every life, at every single one of our locations, while campus pastors are laying in the plain, God, I'm asking that you would move in this church, solidify in us a desire to live in light of your truth. In your name I pray, amen.